Hey everyone, this is Robert Jackson. Thank you for watching the podcast. And today we are going to be chatting. Um, this is a new day, different day, and it's a beautiful Saturday afternoon, evening, whichever time zone, like we're both in. So today um, I am pleased to have on my podcast again, Mr. Chuck McKippen. Thank you so much for um, coming, stopping by just to answer more questions that I have. You're so welcome, there's Robert. Plenty. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I have as many answers as you have questions. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for the invite. And thank you, folks who are listening. We appreciate yeah. your being here, both of us. Not a problem. Alrighty. Yep. So well, um, go ahead. Fire. Yeah. So <laughs> last time we talked extensively about Mel Blank. We know yes. about, you know, the stories and histories and, you know, everything and all in between. Um, right. And right. I think the last time we were talking about, like, um, I think uh, I'm pretty sure we were talking about, like, websites and social media and, like, you know, the industry. So um, let me pull up my questions right sure. now. Sure. Alrighty, so my first question that I have for today's podcast, depending on how long we have here. Um, so the industry had really changed a lot since, well, the pandemic, because, um, yeah, it, like, usually it has a lot of unexpected changes, you know, yes. with everywhere and, like, like with film, theater, TV, like, all avenues of show business. Mm -hmm. So um, with this new advancement, well, um I mean, I know that a lot already have their home studio setups and recordings and, you know, everything that's been going on, but there's been a lot more development developments that are being made, like, yes. especially since 2020. So um, yes. how would you say that, like, uh, what changes or improvements have you noticed with this whole home recording, um, you know, with the direction that we're going into sure. and where do you see it move? Where do you see it moving forward to in the foreseeable future? As we're still navigating through this whole COVID <laughs> right. pandemic crisis. That I'm going to, I'm going to give you right a, a broader answer than just that. You know, I come from the tape recorder era. When I worked for Mel Blank, we were cutting audio recording tape with razor blades and marking the spot where we'd cut with a so-called grease pencil. And a single-edged razor blade did the job of uh, taking out the mistakes. Incredible that we could work that way. And there was absolutely no digital processing at all. So the first huge revolution, which I got into in 1995, was the digital one. Uh, thanks to friends of mine who had a fully equipped Pro Tools studio in 1995. Incredibly enough, I learned to edit digitally and record that way we couldn't download enough audio onto a computer at that point and also run the program so what we had to do was store the resulting mix downs on digital audio tape which was the the, the uh, child of two processes digital and tape recording so it had the worst aspects of both <laughs> but that was a standard for about 10 years okay so don lafontaine becomes he's, he's the in the world in a world guy you know in a world uh the late great wonderful don lafontaine a dear man really sparked the revolution of home recording in well the 90s he went big time 
working from his home because he was run ragged dropping in on studios all around the Los Angeles area. And it was, even though he took a limo with his own full-time driver to those studios, he was making that kind of money. It nevertheless behooved him to go with the latest development, which was ISDN, Integrated Services Digital Network. Now that's an obsolete kind of technology. It used a pair of telephone lines to connect a home studio to another studio. It was costly. The best uh, codecs that could do the job were about 10 grand a piece. But if you were Don LaFontaine and recording for the whole world, including dozens of studios in Hollywood and in New York, no big deal. You'll make that 10 grand back in one job. Incredible. All right. So he was the real pioneer. It also made a celebrity out of a guy named George Whittam, who calls himself George the Tech Whittam. I'm going to drop a couple of names here for your folks to know. George, I respect greatly as an audio engineer. He could teach me a couple of lessons and that would be hard to do, but um, he's got all the knowledge and I do respect George. Another guy I really respect who had nothing to do with Don uh, is a fellow out there named Booth Junkie. Booth Junkie is a very amusing fella and he's got a lot of good knowledge and I do watch his videos. So I am a student always, uh, you know, I'll never stop being a student of this business. All right. What happened in 2000, 2020? Well, the digital revolution happened just in time because had it happened a decade earlier, I don't mean that. I mean, had the digital revolution not happened at the same time as the COVID pandemic, rather, we wouldn't have been ready for the pandemic. Nobody could go to any studios. My friend Bob Bergen, the voice of Porky Pig, had to stop going to any studios connected with Warner Brothers to do Porky. So they told him, Bob, you've got to get a the Sennheiser 416 shotgun mic, because that's the mic we want you on. It's a $1,000 microphone. You've got to be in a voiceover booth in your home. You've got to connect via the internet, via something called Source Connect, which replaced ISDN. Source Connect does not need hardware. It's online service. It's more like an app. And it's not a program exactly on your computer. It's an app that you use, much like Zoom. And it allows you to record from anywhere. Well, he was getting into that just at the time when Warner's had to say, don't come in to record Porky Pig or Tweety Bird, his two main characters that he does. All right. So that was one of the first things that happened. There was a run on equipment. I couldn't get equipment for my for my voiceover students. It was such a deluge of people buying mics, mixers, uh, digital interface you name it, that it was a huge boom for equipment manufacturers. People were on waiting lists for months and there was price gouging. Uh, an $80 mixer from, uh, you know, a company was suddenly $150. That was outrageous. Okay, all that's calmed down by now. But what happened was millions, literally millions of people moved to working from inside studios and will never go back from home studios that includes the the biggest voiceover people you can name the the biggest uh, headline voiceover stars in the business uh they're all working from home studios now as far as technology updates i have found uh, a couple of technologies that are really pretty nifty 
one of them that I've been playing around with, only got it recently, is uh, Iso, Isotrope RX. Uh, version 8 was cheap. I think I paid $30 for it. It almost eliminates the need to be in a voice booth by knocking out in post-production just about all your background noise. So you could be in a very ordinary room, and as long as you're not live in real time recording for somebody on uh, Source Connect, uh, this RX 8, and now 9 is out, uh, does a rather spectacular job of removing background noise without any digital artifacts to your voice. In the past, uh, programs like I use, Adobe Audition, did have noise reduction uh, capabilities. But often, if you went a little too far, it would create nasty digital artifacts in your voice that were unacceptable. And so many people were overusing noise reduction in the past. But I got to tell you, I'm now a fan of uh, uh, Isotope and its RX program. And uh, for the price, where I bought the stripped-down model just to play around with it. I would probably go for the Pro version later. So, yeah, the, you know, and $100 microphones are a thing. I'm talking to you on a $100 fabulous microphone. Uh, SC Electronics from Japan, I believe. The SEX1 microphone is what you're hearing me on. And uh, I think it's just tremendous. And I've been on $2,500 microphones all over the place in New York City. When I was very active as a voice talent in New York, I went to Time Warner Studios, for instance, where they had the uh, Neumann U87, an industry standard, $2,500 mic. I have those recordings, many of them now on my computer, and I compared the sound on this mic to that one, and I can't hear the difference, and I've got really fine-tuned ears. So the good news for anybody listening who's interested in getting into voiceover, and I know that's a big part of the, the folks that uh, listen to you, the good news is the inexpensive equipment will serve you just fine, but I will caution against using a usb microphone the reason is you can't put anything in between that mic and your uh recording program that will do anything for you you'll just be recording whatever noise your mic picks up now i do use a behringer multigate pro noise gate and i'm going through it right now so you don't hear the noise in my room live in real time that unit has been discontinued the Model, uh, what was it, 4400 was discontinued, but I love mine, and I'll continue to use it or even buy a used one if this one fails. Uh, if you're going to do live recording, how often does that happen? Well, that's another part of the answer for you. Live recordings being directed by somebody a thousand miles away are really common. Source Connect is a live connection between two points. And the director can talk to you and say, give me another read on that line. He's hearing you live in real time and recording you on his end or her end, as the case may be. So be prepared to have a quiet studio that doesn't require necessarily post-production to make it quieter. But I am recording in a finished basement in a little cove that I created. I'm surrounded by sound-absorbing blankets and... Um, uh, what else? Oh, some panels that I built using Armstrong ceiling tiles, those uh, yellow uh, ceiling tiles. I've got them facing 
into the room so that they absorb bouncing sound. And that's why you don't hear any reverberation in my sound. And that's what nobody wants. They want to hear just your voice and nothing but your voice. Uh, by the way, if I may do a little plug here, Robert, for my uh, services and teaching people, and I'll get to that as my hobby. Um, I do not have a website anymore. I used to be voiceoverisland.com. I just let that drop after a while. It was 20 years old and in need of serious updating. So now people who are listening to this could reach me directly at Philly Vigo, P-H-I-L-L-Y, V as in Victor, O as in Oscar, Philly Vigo at Comcast.net. I welcome all the inquiries that any of your listeners want to send to me, anything they want to chat about. I'm a very friendly fellow. I don't bite, and I would love to hear from any and all of your listeners. So I've seen some wonderful things that made it possible for literally anybody with a couple of spare dollars in their pocket to get into voiceover work. Of course, that's a double-edged sword, because now there are people out there posing as voice teachers who really are not qualified to teach at all. But, you know, they spent three months online, and they think they're all that. And uh, so now they're offering themselves as teachers. Well, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. But when the price of entry drops so much, so many people are attracted to this business that they think, gee, all I have to do is be myself and talk. Uh, and I'll buy a $100 USB mic, plug it into my computer, and that's my entire studio. Well, they're badly mistaken. Uh, there's a lot to it. And when they try to do their first audiobook, good luck with that, because that's arduous work. That is being a voice actor. Uh, you know, you're not an announcer at that point. You're not just, well, you know, your high school principal was an announcer when he made announcements on uh, the PA system in your school. But he was no voice actor, was he? So, so uh, voice acting is difficult. It requires a lot of talent. I teach that, and I teach the technology, too. And I teach it inexpensively. I'm around $50 a lesson, believe it or not. So anybody out there who ever looked at voiceover lesson prices and saw $175 an hour at Edge Studio or uh, Nancy Wolfson out there who wants a similar number, $175 in Southern California, I say, you don't have to pay that kind of money. I'm not going to judge those people and the quality of their teaching, but I am going to say I'm just as good, probably better, and uh, um, I don't charge anything like that because I think, honestly, voiceover coaching ought to cost what it costs to take a piano lesson. You know, a little boy, a little girl taking piano, what do they pay, $30 a half hour? That's uh, sort of like my rate, you see. Um, I think that's only fair. I, I don't believe in gouging people. Uh, I am a Christian, may not, may not be the hippest thing in the world to be, but I'm a Christian believer, and I do believe that... A uh, higher power guided my success in this business. Uh, I'll get to that more when you ask me what would the what would the older Chuck tell his younger version later. I'll get to that. Anyway, so the the modern technology has made it possible, especially in the year two thousand, for literally millions of people to jump in as so called voice artists. How many really are artists at it is a very big question. But, you know, they're going to need some help. I, I will tell you that whether I were uh, a coach or not, you got to have a coach. 
even if it's not me, you got to have a good coach. And, um, you know, there's some good ones out there. But people have asked me, Chuck, if you didn't teach, who would you uh, send a student to? I don't have anybody I recommend. That doesn't mean there isn't anybody, but no one that I know of that I would recommend. However, if you're going to try to get into cartoon voice work, Bob Bergen out in Hollywood is your man. He's the voice of Porky Pig. His wonderful uh, site, Ask the Pig, which is hilarious, answers a lot of questions. That's on uh, YouTube, I guess. And uh, he's a very nice man. He's a wonderful guy. And he does give lessons in getting into and surviving in extremely competitive world of uh, cartoon voice work. He's the man, and he's a good friend. I'm happy to say. I'm proud to say. Uh, You've got other questions on your list, though, I know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so since you've mentioned um, your web, I mean, you used to have a website. I yes. mean, you teach classes and whatnot. So um, we'll probably get into that um, in yeah. just a little bit. So yeah. for now, um, Oh, yeah. Like, do you have any other stories? Because I know we've oh, talked. Sure. Yeah, of course. Because I know you've <laughs> mentioned on the phone to me one time that you've worked with a lot of very, I mean, like, um, the last time you mentioned that there's a lot of stars that used to come in and record voiceover yep. work, like celebrities, and you've mentioned all of these amazing people. So um, <laughs> I know I've sent you a list of, like, dozens of names, yep. like, in the industry that, um that were equally as, or uh, just a lot of people that were like incredibly gifted and talented at what they did, yep. who are also brilliant voiceover artists, performers, and just people in general. Like I mentioned Dawes Butler, yes. Jim Foray, Don Messick, Paul Fries, Casey right. Kasem, and right. the list goes on and on and on. So, um, <laughs> and I know you also have stories about people that, um, they also do cartoon voiceovers. Uh, they also done like TV, radio, and other avenues of showbiz. So do you have any particular fun, fun stories of like working with all of these stars that sure. have unfortunately, they're no longer with us, but they still live on in our hearts. That's the important thing to keep in mind. So in yeah, any important story, fun stories that you have working with all of these wonderful people i was fortunate to get to hollywood in 1972 because that was a changing point many movie stars would not touch television work they wouldn't uh, even appear on tv shows as a guest star because they were movie stars and it was slumming if you went to tv however by 72 a couple of very major stars a man considered the greatest actor in the world uh, sir lawrence olivier did commercials on camera for Polaroid instant cameras. When he did that, it changed the world of commercials because every other actor said, well, if the so-called greatest actor in the world will do a commercial for a camera, why am I not telling my agent to go get me some commercials? In 1972, this was the big booming thing. So I got to work with, for instance, um, gosh, all the names you mentioned, uh, uh, pretty much. Mel Blanc was very popular with other celebrities, fortunately, and they liked to work with him at his production studio. In no particular order, I mentioned some of the people who came in. We had movie stars, for instance, like 
uh, Vincent Price from all those Edgar Allan Poe movies, a half dozen of them that made him so famous, the master of horror films. Uh, Vincent Price, a brilliant actor from the 40s, the 50s, but now he was there to do a radio show with us, a syndicated radio show. So it's he and I working together with actually with Noel Blank in the other room in his office listening in. I'm so pleased and amazed to be able to say that often I would just be working one-on-one -on -one with these big stars. One day we had a visit from Spartacus himself. Uh, that was, uh, of course, Kirk Douglas, the great Kirk Douglas. He lived to be, what, 102, 103? And his son came in with him one day, who was a nobody yet. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a big star yet himself. He was just a kid, so I met him early. But Kirk Douglas, having played Spartacus, I expected a man about eight feet tall to walk in, all muscle. And here comes this guy about 5'8". And I was, I was about five, six, so we stood almost eye to eye. And I thought, he's wiry. He's not a big muscle builder. He's a wiry guy. He looks like he might be a swimmer or a golfer. Nicest man you'd ever want to meet. And very unaffected, uh, really down to earth. I sat there and I said to him, Mr. Jeez, you're, so, you know, you're an icon. You are an icon. And, uh, I hope I'm not insulting you with this question, but why would you be interested in doing radio? And he said, young man, what was the last movie you saw me in? I pr pretty quickly, I answered uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It was on TV a few weeks ago. It's one of my favorites by Disney. He said, yeah, 1955. The money's long gone. He said, I haven't seen a lot of good scripts in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Nothing really appeals to me. And I'm getting older. I can't be the leading man anymore. Now I got to become a character actor. And so, you know, here's this great star. And suddenly he's doing radio work. But listen, it paid a lot. <clears throat> if you were a star, it could pay you $100,000 a year to do a series like the one that we were working on. Unfortunately, it didn't sell. It was too melodramatic. Uh, a problem for him was he. He was too actory, and I'm going to pass that along to other would-be actors in the voiceover field. Don't be too theatrical. Uh, many Hollywood celebrities did not make it in voiceover work because they were acting too broadly and not realizing that radio was such an intimate medium. But, uh, you know, my getting to work with Kirk Douglas was a great thrill. He was an icon who received a Lifetime Academy Award for 50 years of outstanding work in movies. And then um, some of the other names were more familiar from radio and TV. I got to work with Jack Pounce. Uh, uh, Jack was another movie actor just before I moved out of the movie actors. He also got an Academy Award in Curly's Gold for um, uh, a secondary role. But uh, he was a terrifying presence, just this huge, big, muscular man who I, th <laughs> you know, I did expect uh, that he would be that. And he was just terrifying in person. And he was, had been a coal miner and a uh, boxer. So he was one tough hombre. He was a really tough guy. And I, I said to him, uh, sir, I've heard your name pronounced Jack Palance and Jack Palance. I want to call you by your last name. I don't feel comfortable calling you, you know, by your first name. So may I ask, what's the right pronunciation? He looked at me like I had three heads. And he said, 
It's pounds, just plain pounds. None of that French garbage. <laughs> so, okay, I called him Mr. Pounds, and he did one of the most terrifying horror reads I'd ever heard in my life, which hopefully I'll get around to putting on YouTube at some point. Uh, nice man, though, uh, for all the gruff exterior. He was a really sweet guy and one of Mel and Noel Blank's best friends. Casey Kasem, I want to tell you the Casey Kasem story. He got hired without testing to speak on 42 voice tracks for the U.S. and Canada for Dairy Queen, I believe for the year uh, 1974. I was going to do all 42 of these tracks in one session with him, which I did. Unfortunately, they had loaded a word into every single script that he couldn't say. It was, the Dairy Queen is scrumptilly-icious. He starts reading of all the executives from Dairy Queen and their ad agency who are in back of me in the control room. And he goes, Dairy Queen is not just good. It's scrumptilly-icious. It's scrumptilly-icious. What's this word? Scrumptilly-icious, Carrie. Casey Scrump Delicious. Oh, okay. It's Scrump Delicious. He couldn't say it. So we sent them down to the little uh, restaurant downstairs in the bank building that we were in and told him, please spend a half hour just to have some coffee. It's on us. Um, come back up and we will have worked out this problem. Noel Blank asked me because he, Casey Kasem was a disc jockey, basically. And so had I been for years and years. And he said, Chuck, you're the DJ here. Go talk to Casey, DJ to DJ, and tell him what the problem is and try to work it out with him. So I did that. And what the solution was, was believe it or not, to record him saying each phoneme. That is each part of the word. It's scrump, 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 scrump. Dilly, 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 dilly. Ishus, ishus. You get the idea. I had a reel of tape filled with those sounds. I spent the next two weeks editing them together in each of the 42 voice tracks. And at that point, that reel of tape was worth approximately half a million dollars. Why? Because he'd been paid $25,000 session fee to show up and make those 42 recordings. Just for showing up, you get a session fee in the big time under union rules. Then, by the time those commercials aired on radio and television in the U.S. and Canada, he would have made another half million dollars from that day's work. So that reel of tape suddenly was imbued with the equivalent of half a million dollars worth of value. Had I accidentally hit a race on that tape, I would have been the goat of all time. I would have been fired immediately and never worked in the business again. So I was very, very, very careful with that tape. In fact, I didn't cut it at all. I cut a copy of it to insert scrumptilly-icious every time he was supposed to say it. Can you imagine? You see, Casey was a disc jockey. He was not a veteran voiceover guy. He was not a voice actor. A sweet man, a dear, wonderful man. But he didn't have a lot of experience in voiceover work. American Top 40 had made him famous and rich. But um, it was not a background that included a lot of acting. And by the way, he expressed a tremendous desire to be an actor to us in, in the private moments in the studio. Whoops, sorry, popped my pee there. Uh, he expressed a tremendous desire to act 
never happened. He never got a chance. Uh, Casey was the ultimate disc jockey, and that's, you know, not bad considering how many millions he made. Uh, the craziest, I do want to tell you the Paul Freeze story, the craziest session ever. Paul Freeze, the Pillsbury Doughboy. Uh, let's see, what else did he play? He was uh, Boris Badenoff on Rocky and Bullwinkle. He was uh, Burgermeister Meisterburger. I think that's the right name on the Rankin Bass uh, specials at Christmas time. He was on everything. He was Ludwig von Drake for Walt Disney, for Disneyland TV show. Uh, he was everywhere in Hollywood and he was all over on TV. So he made far more money than Mel Blanc ever did because he was always getting TV residuals, which Mel Blanc did not. When they put his theatrical cartoons on the air on TV, Mel didn't collect residuals. Nothing, in fact. So he comes in. He's the arch enemy of Mel Blanc. Mel and Noel despised this man. But he was really number two, honestly. If you take the big three, Dawes Butler, uh, Paul Fries, and Mel Blanc, Mel was number one. It would be kind of a toss-up between the other two, but I would have to say, just based on working for more people and bigger names like Disney, that Paul Fries was really his main competitor. So Paul Fries is there, but he's half nuts. He walks in the door of our office and announces very loudly, please to tell Mr. Blank that the Baron is here. The Baron, yes, he came in costume. He was dressed like a European Baron wearing a black cape, <laughs> a tuxedo, a black cane, and uh, looking for all the world with his handlebar mustache like he was pretty funny because he was a very short guy. I think it might have been 5'2", five 5'4", five I don't know. But anyway, he had a big booming voice, as you could hear when he did uh, Boris Bad Enough. By the way, he was also the voice of the Haunted Castle at uh, the Disney parks. Anyway, he's there in character, and he tells us that it's very boring to be Paul, so please call him the Baron. I'm serious. He didn't get out of character. Well, he and Noel... Uh, uh, didn't like each other. Okay. But I mean, they were civil to each other. And, and uh, Paul goes into the booth to work on a Paul Parrot children's shoes radio commercial with his arch enemy because they're the two biggest guys in the world in cartoon voice work. So they were on a script, and one of them, I forget which, unfortunately, 50 years later, but one of them screwed up a little bit on the script. Well, that started. The other one said, what are you, some kind of idiot? You can't read words right in front of you. Oh, my God. So here are these two giants of cartoon voice work pulling out all the stops to insult each other. And they meant it. <laughs> they were not buddies at all. They're going at tooth and nail. I go to turn off the recorder thinking, well, this is a waste of tape. Noel looks at me and he says, no, 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 no. Let that thing run. Let it run. We're capturing gold. Are you kidding? Don't let it run. And so they went on for, I don't know, 10 minutes. I think we filled the reel of tape. And they finally got the commercial done. I don't even remember finishing it, to be honest, because we were rolling on the floor laughing, the two of us in the control room. But here are these two giants of voiceover work going at each other's throat. Well, they told me that uh, you got to give it to to this man for his talent. Uh, 
he did do hundreds of very distinctive, brilliant voices. But they said he was the biggest um, male member. <laughs> Don't want to use dirty language. He was the biggest male member in Hollywood, if you get my drift. Uh, he just was not a nice man. He was kind of cracked. Maybe not all there. I don't know. But that was my one day that I got to work with Paul Fries. Sadly, I didn't get to work with Dawes Butler because he was exclusive with Hanna-Barbera. He was their equivalent of Mel Blanc. He did all their major characters. And sweet guy by all accounts. And a very good teacher of voiceover. Nancy Cartwright gives him all the credit in the world. You know, the, the voice of Bart Simpson. Uh, he gave private lessons in his home, as I still do, even to this day. And um, he is revered in the business, but Mel didn't think much of his talent. He said, oh, all his voices sound alike. They all sound Southern. So, okay, well, who else is your biggest competitor? And he said, well, Paul Freeze, but he's the biggest blank in the world. And uh, he didn't mention anybody else. He didn't like Donald Duck's voice. He said, you can never understand it. That was Clarence Nash working exclusively for Disney and doing only Donald. He was a one-voicer. He didn't do other characters. Uh, you can make it in Hollywood as a one-voicer, but that's rare. Today, unfortunately, because of, because of these three giants who could all do dozens at least of voices, a talent agent today will want you to do dozens of voices before they'll even talk to you about being represented in cartoon work. And we see that. We see it in The Simpsons, going all the way back to the start of The Simpsons, just half a dozen people doing every character in The Simpsons. Well, sure. And they all made millions of dollars because they're good, and they can play everybody that is needed one way or the other. Um, but, yeah, that was the goofiest uh, session of all. And he walked out uh, still as the Baron, you know. Uh, he, he just and, – and I said to Noel, what on earth – what he says well he comes down from uh, san francisco just to record he lives up there all the time across the bridge the golden gate bridge in uh, the little town on the other side and he lives a good life he goes to wonderful restaurants and theater and all that but when he works he makes a fortune and he made a fortune today being the baron but he just thinks it's so boring to just be paul and walk down the street as paul so he actually went out in costume i think that's illegal in some states to be <laughs> to be in a costume all the time anyway um casey Kasem, wonderful person as i said oh but maybe the most sweet part of them all was uh gary owens from laugh in fame on national tv as the announcer with a hand over the ear but gary owens was a brilliant disc jockey he was on the big fifty thousand watt kmpc in hollywood and he was a star disc jockey, a celebrity disc jockey. He was brilliant and the dearest man you could ever want to meet in your life. So I was thrilled to meet him. Here I was, uh, the laughing came on in the late 60s. So by the time I met him, he was a major, major voice star with a sterling voice, just the most amazing voice ever. And I got to work with him every single week because I was working on getting out the Gary Owens syndicated radio show. And he would do commercials for the little stations that ran the program. He wrote them and voiced them and they were crazy. He was a very clever, funny guy. And he would write these silly little commercials 
for local advertisers because he just enjoyed it and uh, would give a, you know, you're running my show here. I'll do commercials for your advertisers and station breaks. Also, you could have this Hollywood voiceover guy on your 250 watt radio station in Fargo, North Dakota, you know, um, but Gary was the sweetest man I ever met. But don't let outward appearances fool you. Uh, one day he took me for a ride in his Lincoln Continental. And I noticed in the center console there was a sawed-off shotgun. Oh, Gary, what's this about? I said. He said, well, you know, Hollywood's filled with crazy people. Uh, somebody up in San Francisco just walked into a radio sto station and shot the guy who was on the air, which is a true story, by the way. He was t an outrageous talk show host who apparently really irked somebody too much. And uh, the guy shot him while he was broadcasting. After that, KMPC became a fortress. Uh, you had to get through about three different security passages to get in. But I was there every single Friday. And that was the last thing I did each week so I could go home after that because I lived down the street in Hollywood. Uh, but I would hang with Gary and, oh, my God, the stories he could tell. He really was Mr. Hollywood. Um, my friend out there who's a major, major uh, voiceover star for many years, his name is Randy West. A big shout out to Randy. Um, he's a game show announcer by uh, profession. He has uh, substituted on the price of uh, the price is right for his mentor, uh, uh, the great Johnny Olson, and uh, was taught by Johnny. Uh, so Randy is a major uh, a game show announcer and a dear friend. And, you know, he, uh, he, called, uh, he called Gary Owens Mr. Mr. Hollywood because he just had glamour connected to him. Hey, everyone. We're continuing... Um whichever multi-parter interview this is but yep i have chuck in the corner with me once again and we're just gonna be just chatting away like we always do so thank you so much for joining me on this lovely sunday afternoon evening yeah wibbly wobbly <laughs> but yeah <laughs> hope you're doing well so yeah we're just gonna get right to the last remaining questions here with the time that we do have right. so um yeah, I know that yesterday we talked about about working with other actors and um, all the stories and whatnot. Um, oh, yeah, I should also probably give a quick shout out to um, Mr. Stan Freeberg, who I yeah. felt so like really bad for leaving out when I mentioned, you know, all these brilliant, wonderful names. But Stan is definitely up, up on the list. So, yep, we um, love you, Stan. And just <laughs> thank all of these actors for all their wonderful so just pointing that out there so yeah um i'm glad you mentioned him because um when i asked mel and noel blank who's our biggest competitor for creative advertising creation that's a little uh overworking the word creation anyway which company if any are we competing with and he said stan freeberg's company because stan was such a brilliant person and, of course, they are on a few of the Warner Brothers cartoons together with Stan playing roles of different types. Um, Stan Freeberg was a crazy genius. And I uh, never got to meet him, unfortunately. But he was uh, one really clever uh, genius of, of a funny guy. He really was. Thank you for including him. Um, I didn't get to meet, um, let's see, um, you mentioned another fellow who worked exclusively 
with uh, Don Messick with, um, unfortunately, oh, yeah. I never bumped into him because he was always with Hanna-Barbera. And I never even went to the Hanna-Barbera studios. Um, the wow. one, the time that, however, I actually kind of worked for Hanna-Barbera was when Mel again had an accident. Now, he had that 1961 horrific accident where he literally broke every bone in his body going around dead man's curve and uh, another car came the other way head-on collision and they some newspapers actually published uh voice genius mel blank has died in car crash so uh he survived it but it was a long time before he was okay in fact he never really recovered because so many shattered bones left him in a lot of pain anyway um he broke his leg again while i was working for him he broke it up at big bear lake in california about i think 100 miles outside of la and he had a lovely cabin up there which is noel blouse is here uh, by this man-made lake well he was in a boat and slipped fell broke his leg badly so he had to do some recording for hannah barbera a lot of people don't know that he was barney rubble for hb so he needed to record his lines as barney and we did that in a hospital bed he was in santa monica hospital i brought some gobos which are portable sound blocking sound absorbing panels that i built for the studio um brought them to the hospital in an ampex 600 portable professional tape recorder we hung his beloved um, sony microphone over his head the ones that he really loved and brought that from the studio and there I was recording Barney Rubble uh, for the cartoons. Not all that different from recording in the studio, because this was all on tape. Uh, Hanna-Barbera had its own recording studio for dialogue. When they needed music, they went to a true music recording facility, a lot bigger. But they had a little booth. Uh, there are a few pictures taken by Life magazine of sessions going on in that booth with all the Flintstones cast, including Mel, and uh, they're, they're readily available. If you look up Flintstones cast, Mel Blank, etc., you'll you'll find them. Um, so it was a little not very impressive booth, but then to do the kind of cartoon work uh, that they were doing, you didn't need much. You know, it was almost like a radio station. Honestly, the reason why I was so able to fit right into the routine there at the Mel Blank studio which was called Mel Blank Audio Media, is because it was exactly like a well-equipped radio station's production room. And I had been in radio production for nine years. So when I got the opportunity to go to work with them, I actually just knew what to do. Uh, very lucky for me. Today, of course, recording is a lot more technological. And uh, I got a couple of things to add uh, uh, for your fans who are listening for tips and advice i got a couple more goodies but um we can get to that i don't i don't want to get away from the history things too much here yet so of course ask me another question there yeah so um <laughs> my next question is um so what kind of inspired you to like start coaching and teaching students oh. and how did you get started with the whole like um you know teaching uh, and get into that little field uh, that little expertise I was very, of yours. <laughs> I was very fortunate to land a job as a producer, director of 
commercials without too much trouble. Actually, once I got in New York in 1977, uh, by 1978, I was working for an ad agency along with a brilliant uh, creative director, Tom Evitable. A shout out to Tom. I don't know if he knows of this podcast or not, but uh, long lost friend, you know, many, many years I worked to, with him ago. So Tom, uh, Tom and I came in as a team making radio and TV commercials. I knew nothing about TV. I was a radio guy, 100%. But I learned on the job, and fortunately, the boss didn't mind that. We won a bunch of awards. We did good work, and I was there for eight years. Well, around the mid-1980s, I was hiring and auditioning a lot of New York actors. And they all were interested in getting into voiceover. For some of them, their agent sent them over to audition. And they said, gee, this is a really interesting way to be an actor. A couple of them said, would you teach it to me? Would you teach me voiceover skills? The very first student I had, a wonderful woman who's here in New Jersey and not far away, Catherine Landher, uh, she was the first to really get serious about it. And she said, uh, I accept the idea that you don't know what you're doing as a teacher because you haven't been teaching. <laughs> because I explained that to her. I said, look, I... I don't know how to teach voiceover, but I'll stumble through it. And so she put up with that. Well, here's what happened to her. She went to Hollywood, uh, didn't like it, didn't, didn't like trying to be a movie actress. That's a really rough gig. And, but she did incredibly well in voiceover, and she became the spokeswoman for Boston Market on a large number of national TV commercials. If I can talk out of school just a little bit. She got enough money from that account alone to put a down payment on uh, a condo in Long Island. Incredible. But she was really, really, really good. She just walked away from being on camera. She said, you know, the competition with young girls, with young women is so fierce. You feel yourself getting older day by day and everybody's the new girl in town and all that. So she, uh, she just concentrated on voice work. Good for her. And she did really well. In it. I think she still dabbles in it, in fact. And now she's the mommy of a couple of the most beautiful kids you'd ever want to see in your life. I would say, you know, for a lot of people, they put career first in show business. Don't neglect. Um, don't go too far before you stop to say, do I need a partner, uh, a life partner? You know, I have found mine. Oh, gosh, I was in my 50s before I discovered my wife. And I was just the itinerant um, radio and TV, TV guy traveling around the country from job to job for the longest time in radio. Finally settled down in New York, and that's where I met my wonderful wife. And we've been together ever since only 1999, which isn't a very long history, you know, considering my age of 75. But she understands me like an open book, and she's my best friend and partner and all that, you know. Anyway. Um, yeah, don't neglect your personal life. If you're, if you're going after something, go for it. Go and go big. You know, you did ask me another question, which was, what would you do differently if you lived your life all over again? In terms of career, I think I couldn't do anything differently and be as successful as I was because I stumbled into meeting Mel Blank and I failed many times to get what I wanted out of life failed at getting jobs that I wanted and thought I needed and all that. But I would have been stuck as a disc jockey in Cincinnati 
had I married the girl that I was in love with in college. And that wouldn't have made me a guest on your show today. Look at that. You wouldn't have wanted to talk to me. Former disc jockey in Cincinnati. Really? <laughs> so here's the deal. I can't say that God ever let me take a wrong step. There are a lot of steps I didn't understand and didn't like. But I, like Don LaFontaine said in a letter to me, the great voiceover guy from the movies, um, we, we communicated a bit online, I'm so happy to say. And he said, I feel that someone guided every footstep of my career. And he was an accidental giant in the business. You know, he stumbled into it and became the world's most successful voiceover artist ever. So you could ask Don the same question. Had you stayed on the track you intended to, would it have paid off nearly as well as stumbling into something? You know, so go big, go bold. Don't, uh, don't half-ass anything. Go for it. But understand, you may not get what you want, but maybe that's not intended to happen. You know, when I got to meet Mel Blank, I was there at the right moment in the history of the universe. Another day different would have not worked but i was there the night they opened the school of commercials and voice the mel blank school of commercials and voice in 1972 i just happened to be a guest thanks to a man who i met uh, named rod tebow a recording engineer who knew mel and had built his studio in fact he was that good that he built mel's studio so living my life again i couldn't change anything except for my eating habits here is, here, I've thought a lot about that question. What can I tell a young person? Watch what you eat. Eat healthy food from the beginning. When you're 25, you're invincible, or so you think. But that's when you actually should cut out the French fries and the bacon double cheeseburgers and all the junk food and start eating salad. I'm not kidding. You want to be my age and be healthy? Uh, I got three stents in my arteries to keep them open. And that happened in 2007. I wish I had eaten better before that happened because I got clogged up, you know, and my heart was suffering for it. So um, don't be me in that regard. Eat healthy and exercise and never, ever think that a job should just wear you down to the point where you never get out and get some sunshine and fresh air and exercise. That's just as important. You know, without your health, this it's a cliche, but honestly, without your health, you have absolutely nothing. You can't function. You can't do anything worthwhile. So looking at back at the younger me, I'd say, stay away from the bacon double cheeseburgers and put down those fries. Eat a salad instead. <laughs> I'm serious. There's not one move in my career that I regret because they all paid off eventually. I just had to wait to see how the plan would unfold. And, you know, life is a chess game. Your opponents will make moves that you didn't expect, and you got to dodge them. Uh, be, be quick, be on your toes, be aware that there are people always who probably want the gig you've got, so be the best for it. And uh, do your best, but understand there will be times when you lose, but maybe the, you know, closing one door may open the next one, and it's a bigger door. So I know that sounds a little hokey. Maybe you know, a little too uh, uh, Jiminy Cricket, you know, wishing upon a star and all that crap. But I got to tell you, um, life has worked out beautifully for me, better than I could have planned it. 
I got more out of my life, my career, than I went into it for. I mean, I became the spokesman at, at uh, Time Warner Cable in New York City for a decade in the 90s, doing movie trailers for them, their pay-per-view movies. I did something like over five or 600 of those trailers, made a small fortune doing that, I'm happy to say. So life's been good to me, though I didn't plan to ever work there. I stumbled into that job. It's a long story. I won't bore you with it. Got another no question. <laughs> Got I'm another question for me. Do oh, you have yeah. another question? Oh yeah. So how do you work with your students and fellow actors? Like, what do yeah. the what can they what can they expect to see from Mr. Y Sage <laughs> that is known as Mr. Chuck? <laughs> well, you're very kind. Um, yeah. <laughs> I learned a couple of things along the way. I did, and I learned it mostly by being a producer and seeing the mistakes that actors made. So many of them think that pity will get them the job. They'll walk in the door at an audition and tell you their tales of woe, how they quit their job eight months ago. The wife is angry. She's threatening to leave. Um, the guy says, uh, you know, Mr. McKibben, I can't, uh, I can't uh, make my mortgage this month unless I win this job. So I really, really, really hope you love me. And, and so I hope I really impress you. That is absolutely the wrong way to go about it. So the first lesson that I teach is come from strength, come from strength. And don't start to apply for work until you're ready, until you've got an act, until you have the skills and the equipment too that you're going to need to succeed because you only get one chance to make a first impression. That's an old saying, but it's very, very true in this business. Send out your demos, Chuck McKibben once. And if it stinks, they'll never listen to it twice. They won't, you can send a letter saying, oh, I'm a lot better now. They don't care and they heard you once. So uh, the first thing I tell people, I get them on a realistic path of expectations. Uh, it's a ferociously competitive business. You might fail. You might have to sell your equipment on eBay. Fortunately, there's a ready market for it. And compared to other home-based businesses, which is what we are now as voice actors, we're in a home-based business. It takes only a few hundred dollars to get equipped right, to get equipped correctly. And then it takes a lot, lot of effort to do it right. You've got to develop your talent, your skills. Just because people told you all your life, oh, you have a really nice voice. Don't let that go to your head. Let me tell you whether you have what it takes using your voice. I don't have the greatest voice in the world at all. Yet look at me. I got a lot of voiceover work for 30 years in New York City. Tons of it. So what am I saying here? Well, like an actor, just saying, oh, I took an acting class, so now I'm an actor, doesn't work. Actually, you'll have to go out there and prove that you can act. And voice acting is a form of acting. In fact, it's the principal form of acting. Some great actor once said, oh, I think it was Peter O'Toole, was asked, how much of your acting is voice and how much is movement? And I think it might have been on the actor's studio. And he said, acting is 80% voice. Otherwise, you're an extra standing there. He had a good point. Yeah. So voice acting is something that I learned at the blank studio, where these great actors came in, and they were not announcers. They, were, they would be insulted if you said, uh, uh, you know, hey, you're a great announcer. If you, if you said that to a Jack Pounce, he'd break you in two. I'm no announcer. I'm an actor. I'm a great actor. 
So, um, yeah, announcer is a dirty word. Among the really top voice actors, they're not announcers. Uh, that's, like I said, that's the job your high school teacher had when he got on the PA system or your principal and gave announcements. That's the definition of it. But I teach by doing. I, I dive right into as soon as they have equipment, because I have to work remotely using recording equipment. I give my students a free program to use on their computer. Absolutely free and clear. Uh, I teach them how to use it, which is like teaching somebody who wants to be a, a commercial artist. They need a lot of uh, computer equipment and programs, don't they? If you're going to be a graphic artist and work from your home, you started with a love of art. But now you're not working with pen and ink and so forth. You're working with computers. This is exactly the same kind of business as being a graphic artist. You have talent, you have skills, but you also need to know your equipment and know how to use it, right? And so I teach people to do all the complicated stuff like multi-track recording, uh, making their own demos, adding music and sound effects on additional tracks and so forth. Um, I make them a mini me. And right from the beginning, we start working on corporate narration, which is where the money is. The second largest category is commercials, but not number one, not even for all the millions of commercials we see in here. It's number two. Corporate video is where the big money is. And nobody sees that except the people in the corporations. So it's not shown on network TV at 8 p.m. Uh, but that's where the steady income comes from. And believe me, um, audiobooks can pay well. I've just been talking to a lady at a wonderful website that I want to recommend to your listeners called Narrator List. Narrator List.com. This woman runs a fantastic site for people who want to be audiobook narrators. And uh, I'm going to probably be on it pretty soon, but not as a narrator, but as a guy who uh, finishes off the technical, technical aspect of making an audiobook, which is a pretty big deal. There's a lot of technical requirements, which I also teach. But some people are doing so well, here's my point, in the world of narrating audiobooks that they can hire somebody else to edit it. This is amazing. ACX from 2011 till now has grown by leaps and bounds. And now the audiobook business is huge. And here was Amazon getting into it by buying Audible in 2011. It's gigantic. And I do teach people how to do audiobooks now. How do you do that? You grab some a script from a book. You say, uh, you know, go grab a book at a library. And let's pretend that we're producing it for someone or for yourself to post. And so basically, right from the beginning, we're making demos. But we don't let the world hear them until they're ready for prime time. Let me put it that way. Right from the beginning, I will have my students record a commercial, a corporate narration, maybe a, a paragraph or two from an audiobook, show them how to do the processing, all the you know post-production stuff that is involved, and it's complex sometimes, especially for Audiobook Creation Exchange, ACX. But if they learn every aspect of the business, then they can go out in the world and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to take on the world. But I don't 
give out any false praise. I never do that because that's not doing anybody a favor. I am, I am not one to say, hey, you're doing great. Why don't you come to, uh, you know, next week and do another lesson because you're doing great. Actually, I'll let them walk away if they feel they're not getting it. Uh, if somebody says to me, I don't think I'm going anywhere with this, I say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you feel that way, but maybe it's for the best if you do. Because it's not for everybody. It's really not. It's a dream that many people have. But it may, frankly, it may, rem it may remain a dream. I don't want to pour cold water on anybody's dreams, but I have to say I'm realistic about it. Having interviewed, I'm certain, at least a thousand actors and heard their tales of woe, you know, that they were going out every day in New York City, two, three, four auditions a day and getting nowhere with it. And some had, had gotten a few jobs, but they still gave up because they needed to steadily book jobs. You know, there's a great uh, video out there I know that voice. I do recommend that for anybody interested in cartoon work. All these greats in the cartoon world today talk about what it's like to be in a, in a, a cartoon that just got canceled. Suddenly you're out of work. You, got no, you have no living. You don't have money coming in. Unless you are on several different car, cartoon shows all at once, which is pretty unusual if you are. But yeah, I'm, I mean, it's a mercurial life. It is not dependable. Uh, marry somebody who has a really good job. <laughs> I'm serious as a heart attack. Marry somebody who's got a good living going in a regular J-O-B. Because if you want to be a voice actor, it's iffy at best, at best. Remember, I was a producer director. I was the guy for 30 years who other people came to to audition. And I saw them make this constant mistake of being too humble. Oh, and here's the worst one. I actually had a couple of people do this. Hi, uh, Mr. McKibben, you know, my agent said I should come and see you, even though I hate commercials. I never watch them. But my agent said it would be good for me to be in a commercial. You know what I wanted to do with that person? <laughs> How about throwing them out the window? Because I wasn't embarrassed to be making commercials. It was a good living. And I was a producer and director and happy with that life. And so they come in and they tell you how awful commercials are and they don't really want to do them, but they have to. Well, too bad for you, buddy. Guess what? <laughs> you're not going to get the job. Now that you've said that, you're absolutely not going to get the job because I know your heart isn't in it. You'll show up grumpy and I don't need a grumpy employee. Number one thing I can tell any actor starting out. <sighs> Sorry about that. I just popped my microphone. You, we have 15 you minutes are left, there. By, the, by the way. So oh, okay. Thank you. This Great. You are there to please the person you're auditioning for and make them look good. I got a letter of thanks from a producer in New York when I did a big job for him. An email thanking me for getting it, he said. You understand that when I hired you, it was all about me keeping my job. And I said, yes, because I've been a producer in your spot. And I understand that, you know, they're not going to call me if they're unhappy with the voiceover. They're going to put you on the carpet and say, why did you hire McKibben? And so everybody should not understand. Be a good team player. Don't make waves. Don't cause problems. And don't chit chat on the set. Uh, everybody, they're focused on work. 
nobody is there to talk to you about your career. Nobody. You know, if you start chatting with the sound man, with the lighting guy, with the cinematographer on a set making a commercial, hi, you know, I'm really hope, hoping to get somewhere in this business and uh, I'm auditioning all the time. What are some tips that you have? That's a big mistake. You won't get invited back next time. So keep it professional and learn outside of the workplace because that's not where you should be asking those questions. Stay out of the way. Uh, go take your mark. If you're on camera, take your mark, stand there and don't move. Seriously. The, the best way it was put, I don't know if this will resonate with a lot of people because the character is not well known anymore. But, you know, the Lone Ranger and Tonto would go out. The Lone Ranger would get all the credit for doing, you know, saving the town from the bad gunslingers. And Tonto was just along to help him, but he did as much work. Okay. So a guy once wrote me a letter trying to introduce himself. He said, I don't want to be the Lone Ranger. I just want to be your Tonto, meaning I've got your back. I understand that you as the producer are vouching for me. You're putting me in front of your client who you have to answer to as a producer and the owner of the ad agency and a couple of other people who could really cost you your job if you do a bad job. So every time I hired somebody, I was putting my reputation online, not theirs. It, uh, my client couldn't matter less what happened to that actor. I got to be honest about it. But what happened to me would be if I made a big mistake in hiring somebody, I'm going to get blamed for that. So let every actor know you are responsible for making the producer and the director look good. That's all. That's all there is to it. Show up, be on your mark, have your lines memorized, do a good job in the voice booth and make them shine and take no credit for yourself. But after this, one thing I would change about my life, after you do a good job, and if they really liked it and said so, ask if you could quote them in promotional material. Would I be allowed to use your name to tell people that you appreciated the good work I did? Collect a bunch of those, and later on you'll be very glad you had them to, you know, beef up your resume. Oh, here are 20 guys saying, Chuck McKibben is this really great uh, voice talent, and he really knows his, his business and what to do. Unfortunately, I didn't do that. I had many opportunities, and I never used them. Uh, believe it or not, I never took a picture of myself with Mel Blank, and I regret that a lot because I just thought, well, I see him every day. Why, I won't bother him today, but maybe sometime I'll get around to bringing in a camera and get a shot with him. Before I knew it, that opportunity was gone. So um, do those things, collect uh, rave reviews for yourself. It's important for actors. It's important for voice actors. Uh, do that and take really good care of your health. And also never be a griper and never put anything online criticizing anybody in the business. Never. I don't care that you worked for the worst jerk ever. Go online and it's there forever to haunt you. So never go online and say, I just worked for this jerk who made me do my lines 18 times because he, he couldn't be pleased with the way I was reading it. And his name is, oh boy, don't do that. Don't do that. That's advice too from Bob Bergen. You've got nothing but praise for everybody. Not false praise, but if you can't give them any praise, just don't criticize them. Certainly never online. Uh, God, that's, you know, it just haunts you forever if, if you do that. It never goes away, 
as everybody knows, I hope, by now. Um, oh, by the way, all the, what's happening in Hollywood is um, publicity now matters a lot in the form of social media. If you want to be in cartoons, not, not corporate narration, that doesn't matter, but in cartoons, having a lot of followers is very important. Having a lot of people checking you out on social media actually becomes almost a job requirement today if you want to be in cartoons because they realize, well, this is a pre-sale. You know, everybody's praising a Bob Bergen online. Let's put Bob Bergen in the production. He's got how many hundreds of thousands of people who love him. You know, it, it, it suddenly became a very big deal to have social media going for you which I've never had. I mean, I've got 60 or 70,000 people who've seen me on my two YouTube videos, uh, and I am there if somebody wants to see me. There's one from 2011 in which I'm interviewed in my studio. Just look up uh, Chuck McKibben on YouTube. You'll find him. And, um, you know, that I think it's about 73,000 or something like that. I've seen it. And I've gotten some nice comments on that. But, uh, oh, I wanted to mention, Besides um, narrator, narratorlist.com, another device for somebody building a new studio, it's a wonderful new wrinkle, and it's called the DBX-286S Vocal Processor. This, this is like a studio and a drum. It's an all-in-one unit that does everything you need, including noise gating, so that you don't have to sit in a $3,000 box, a $3,000 voice booth in order to record your voiceover this device will actually strip a lot of the background noise out of your voice and leaving just your speech uh live in real time as i also mentioned before a lot of producers want to work with you live in real time as i'm working with you robert and i've got a noise gate keeping the noise around the household from getting onto this track or at least i hope so so um that's that's a piece of gear that i think is just the bomb, you know, the DBX-286S vocal processor. Booth Junkie has a review of it, among other people. There's several about it online. Um, any other questions? Did I leave anything out? Um, just real quick, you could just list off your favorite hobbies, just really quick. Ah, uh, that question. Guess we you got know, like five minutes left. Okay, well, you know, I'm a very dull person outside of this. <laughs> Building a radio station in my home at age 12 was my hobby then. And I went on the air every day after school for an hour and broadcast to my immediate neighborhood on AM radio, played a couple of records and so forth. By 14, I got on a Sunday night shift on a real radio station and made $1.25 an hour for that. But that was my hobby. I don't have any hobbies. I never did. I don't care for sports especially organized sports. I stopped caring about who won after I got out of high school and I didn't know these people anymore. Um, how about uh, organized sports on TV? Eh, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. Unless I had money on the game, I wouldn't care at all. Who it is, you know, what does that mean to me? It's like rooting for a, a company. Yeah, go Microsoft. Yeah. Well, if I had money in Microsoft, I'd root for them. Um, so I don't build ships and bottles and I don't collect stamps, but my hobby actually gets back to talking about taking good care of your health. 
because at least three times a week I go to LA Fitness in their uh, pool and I do upper body exercises because at 75, you know, you lose a lot of upper body strength, a lot of it. And to try to keep from being a little old man, I now work out on a regular basis. And so my health regimen is honestly now my hobby, eating properly, having salad instead of fattening food. Um, that's become my hobby, I guess you could say. I yeah. do love it when here in New Jersey, I'm able to go for a walk in the local parks, which uh, there are many surprisingly in New Jersey. People think it's all chemical plants, but honestly, Saddlebrook, New Jersey, which is where I live, is a lovely, lovely place. And it has uh, a, pla a place where you can walk around a lake just uh, five minutes away from here by foot. So I try to get out on any nice day and walk and get sunshine. Um, those are my hobbies. And, you know, it's better than building, as I say, ships in a bottle. Because what does that get you? Right. A lot of hobbies just seem like busy work to me, almost like, well, I could wait until I'm in a rest home to do that. You know, build a, a I don't know, put together a jigsaw puzzle. Who cares? I've already seen the picture. On the, it was on the cover of the box. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I just, I'm not, I'm, I'm not grabbed by anything except this business. I eat, sleep, live this voiceover business. Seriously. It has dominated my life completely. I was happy when I semi-retired in 2007 that I could just concentrate on voiceover and uh, just teach it and do it. And now all I do is teach. I've actually got good news for anybody who studies with me. I'm not going to be your worst competitor. I'm not going after your job. Um, you know, I've had my day in the sun and it's been grand, but at 75, I don't need to prove anything except to pass it forward. And I get great joy in doing that. If you ask me, did I like being a voiceover as much as teaching? No, no, that was um, not as rewarding in a sense as showing somebody what they could do to make a good living in this business. And seeing it happen. I got guys making 100000 a year and better. And uh, those who do audiobooks all the time, full time, and so forth. And I'm, it's like I'm a proud papa. Because I don't have any kids. And I don't want to call them my kids. But they're like my offspring in the sense that I nurtured them. I nurtured their talent. I encouraged them if I saw that they had potential. And guided them into the business. So I like teaching. Uh, and I like being a help to others because thinking about yourself all your life as a performer, me, 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 it's monotonous. And after a while, you kind of want to get away from it. You know, there are other actors who have talked about that, who just talk about I'm tired of being me all the time and never having a moment's rest if I go to a restaurant or anything. Um, I saw that in Hollywood. When Kirk Douglas walked in the room, we tried to get pictures with him. And he said, uh, look, I've been photographed 10 million times. Could we just not do that? And that's why I don't have a picture of myself with Kirk Douglas, because he asked, could you put down the camera? You know, they get sick of being photographed. So don't envy actors. They don't have an easy life, even when they're successful. Sometimes they're hounded by the paparazzi and have lies told in the tabloid press all the time about them, and they can't stop that. Uh, Mel Blanc Mel Blanc liked his anonymity when he was not being interviewed. He liked being just a guy on the street. 
And he could be famous on TV when he wanted to be. That's a nice life. As a celebrity, that's the perfect life. Be famous when you want to turn it on. Be able to walk out the door onto the street and be ignored by everybody when that's what you want. How about that? So (laughs) I guess um, on that note, um, we'll get to the final question in the next and final part, which will be coming shortly. (laughs) So stay tuned, folks. And um, yeah, yeah. I think that'll be number five, won't it, Robert? Yep, this is the fifth and final part. So, yeah, um, <laughs> stay tuned because it's going to be, we'll be doing the, we'll be recording the last part immediately right after this. Um, you know, we finished part four. So, stay tuned, folks. And yeah, um, I got nothing awesome. else to say, but stay awesome. tuned, guys. <laughs> See you in a little Thanks bit. Thanks for listening, Bye. everybody. Welcome to the fifth and final part of the Chuck interview. So, um, yeah, we really don't have much to cover here since we pretty much discussed um, a lot of different topics and um, so many different parts. Like, wow, <laughs> this is probably the <laughs> most, the biggest multi-parter interview I've ever done for my channel and my podcast. So I'm really happy. I'm just um, incredibly grateful and blessed to be able to have this opportunity in the first place. So. Um, yeah, um, for the fifth question, the last, um, the last one for, um, yeah, just today, and I may have more questions in the future, but this will definitely sure. be the last one for now. But um, sure. I know you kind of already covered this earlier. Um, because I know my question. Oh, yeah. So I think you already discussed your number one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self. Um, and that also can apply for anybody who's interested on just wanting to. Yeah, with the amount of experience and, and expertise that you've accumulated um, over the years yeah. in your experience in the industry and just this can also apply to anybody who um, is interested on pursuing a career in show business, which you've, I know you've given a lot of ton of useful advice um, that we've already covered, but if you have more, if you have like stuff to add on to that, that would be very much appreciated. And my listeners and viewers would just love to absorb all the information they could possibly get uh, for the short time that we do have here. So yeah, anything that you want to add? Well, you know, a a gentleman came to me very funny fellow who was a truck driver uh who came to me because truck driving was just killing him and he wanted to try to get into voiceovers it turned out that he was too big for voiceovers he was a 400 pound truck driver all muscle and a big beard and uh, a striking personality and i said you know you're too big just for a microphone you need a camera on you And I'm very pleased to say that he is now quite successful around the Lehigh Valley, um, which is, uh, you know, the extended area around Philadelphia uh, in uh, doing, you know, these smaller films, these independent films. He always finds a way in. And one of the reasons is because he says, I wear the McKibben brand when I'm there. And by that, I'm very flattered that he says that, but he means something by that. It means that he comes prepared for the job. If he shows up on a set, 
He's got gaffer's tape, you know, what we would otherwise call duct tape, but in the business it's called gaffer's tape. The gaffer, by the way, is the guy who does the electric work, the heavy-duty electric work on a set, um, and uh, it's used for everything. Well, they run out of it. So he's the actor who always has a supply of gaffer's, gaffer's tape in his car. He brings three shirts if he's going to be on camera. Why just one? Maybe it doesn't register well. He brings his own food. They don't have to feed him. He brings everything that he could conceivably need, including a first aid kit. As a result, he gets hired. Is that incredible? Not because he's so good, because he is, but because he's prepared to help the producer and the director. Because he's prepared to be the number one guy who's behind your back, got your back on the set. Now, another thing about that is that he's told me extensively about the people who show up and they're crybabies, they're whiners, they're, why do I have to stand here? Uh, honey, it's because the director said stand there. That's why they'll say to this young girl. Okay, so in other words, he is always the problem solver, not the problem. Be that as an actor, be that as a voiceover. If they tell you be at the studio at X time, don't show up too early or too late. Show up at the time they gave you. I met a fellow who was always late to everything. Always late. And people got tired of trying to fool him into coming on the right, at the right time. This fellow had a really cool job as a, as a freelance announcer on movie trailers for cable systems. I won't mention his name. That wouldn't be right. But he had a fabulous voice and he had a lot of talent. But he was always a half hour or 45 minutes late or an hour and always with a ridiculous story. Oh, well, the damn train. You know, I didn't know that there was going to be a freight train th this morning. You know what? That's a train crossing you go over every time you come here. You didn't think there would ever be a train? Why didn't you allow some minutes for that? So he got let go. And because I knew the principles where he was working, he once asked me, what's wrong with those people? Why don't they call me anymore? And I, and I said, Billy, um, they got tired of you being late. It's as simple as that. You're a great talent, but they got tired of you being late. And, you know, so that can kill a career. There's nothing like professionalism to get you ahead if you don't have an enormous amount of talent. Because they put up with uh, bad attitude and bad habits if you're uh, a genius on camera but if you're not forget about it. who needs you you know that there are always stories online of celebrities that everybody hates and usually it's because they're unprofessional and rude to people and uh, just generally not pleasant to be around listen at the Mel Blanc studio the only people who got there twice were people who were a pleasure to work with and I mean that our core group of performers got hired again and again because a day with them in the studio was a happy day, a pleasant day. We had Joni Gerber, our really the only female voice that we used a lot. And Joni was a little sweetheart and, and a ray of sunshine. She's passed away now. I wish she were around. I'd love to talk to her one more time online or something. But Joni was uh, a ray of sunshine. That's all I can say. She just brightened up the room. And everybody loved having a chance to hire her again. And maybe she wasn't perfect for the job. Get her anyway. She'll, you know, she'll come up with the character. 
So it's like that. Every recording studio that does a lot of production work with actors, they have their core group of favorites, and that's why they're favorites. That's a big secret. Well, not really. The secret is be the person they want to have in that room, not the person who's a pain in the butt. You know, you come in griping about your life. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to. Don't bring us down, please. We're trying to have a good day. And, you know, another just bit of life advice, not really the business per se. Always assume that you don't know what's bugging that person who seems to have a bad attitude. You don't know what's going on in their life, what miseries they're facing in their life that made them that way. Cut them some slack. You don't know their whole story, so don't be too, you know, down on them. Uh, you don't know what this other person is going through. Give them the benefit of the doubt. I used to think that people in casting companies hated me because they were so grumpy when I would walk in the room. Yeah, who are you? Uh, Chuck McKibben. Yeah, so what? I mean, they had that attitude. And then I realized nobody ever wanted to do what they were doing which was to hear a hundred actors read the same commercial today, one after another doing a lousy job of it. What a terrible job interviewing people when you don't have the power to hire them, but you do have the power in casting to not pass them forward. Okay, actors, want to be actors? Here's a good, good one to know. When you're in front of somebody who's a casting person, they hate their job. Make it more pleasant. For them don't demand anything of them instead give them something i'll give you a little tip bring three pieces of really expensive fine chocolate on you three pieces this is a i didn't come up with this idea another guy in voiceover did when you go to see a casting person bring some chocolate with you really good chocolate not cheap and offer it to them when you walk in hi chuck mckibben here listen uh before we get started my wife thought i should maybe have some chocolate to nibble on later but uh, you know my waist i can't eat this kind of thing but you're trim why don't you take it please enjoy it you've just given that casting person something and they will not turn it down i guarantee that they won't say no thanks i'm off chocolate no they'll take it if they only re-gift it to somebody else they'll take it and they'll remember you were the guy who walked in with something to give to them not with need and your tales of woe about how lousy it is to be an actor. They hear that all day, every day, and they're sick of it. So understand that casting person, nobody ever grew up saying, boy, when I grow up, I sure hope I can get a job as a casting director. No, what do they say? They say, I sure hope I can get a job as a famous actor. But when they're 45 years old and they see it's not going to happen, that's when they need to know yeah, yeah, you're going to hear other actors, actors who still have hope, and you've given up your hope. So try to get over it and just, you know, tell us which were the good ones and which ones to leave behind. It's a thankless job. And every day in Manhattan, there is a couple of dozen people doing it and hating every minute of it. Understand when you talk to them, they hate your guts. You still have hope. You're still an active participant in go going out to auditions. And they gave that up and took this lousy job that barely pays the rent. They probably live in one of those micro apartments 
where you sleep on the kitchen floor because there's no bedroom. So, um, yeah, they got a lousy life and you don't want to make it any worse. So uh, try to be a, a ray of sunshine and not a dark cloud in their life. What else can we uh, give it as advice, Robert? Have you got a question about how should I have a, a how should I have approached a certain situation? Sure. Yeah, we can talk about that since we still got some time. Yeah, yeah. Like, how have you ever encountered a situation where you weren't sure how to handle it? Because I've been through probably everything in, in show business in general. Pretty much, been, yeah. Been, been there, done <laughs> Everyone, that. Everyone, <you> yeah. <laughs> been there, done that. Yep, yeah. Just sums it up perfectly. Yeah. Did you ever meet somebody who just didn't seem friendly and you're really trying to ingratiate yourself to them? You're trying to get them to like you? I well, won't name names. Okay. But I have. Yeah. But <laughs> I'll just say not. that. I'll just leave it at that. So remember... They're not thinking about you. They don't know you well enough unless they've seen you many, many times before. I had to remind myself of that. I had just gotten off a high of being the national TV spokesman for my first Sony. And by the way, your listeners can see the commercials that I did for Sony two years worth. One, I think, in 87 and one in 88. How many years ago was that? 87 and 88. Yes, 1987, 1988. I was the national spokesman for Sony, and I bought a car with the money from seven seconds worth of copy. I'm not kidding. So the men from Japan flew over for the recording session. I mean, representatives from Sony, men in little black suits. Uh, Mr. McKevin, uh, chairman of Sony, uh, not to speak such good English, but he very much liked the Wii U sound. And that's why the chairman approved me. The chairman of Sony approved me. Ooh, okay. Because this was a big deal. They were introducing their children's electronics for the very first time. So my agent is now sending me out like crazy because I'm, I'm on Sony's commercials. You know, I'm all over network TV over the holidays. Every holiday show, I'm on it. And now I'm thinking, hey, I'm as hot as a firecracker, you know? So I walk in feeling very confident to this next interview. And the guy says, yeah, what's your name? I said, uh, Chuck McKibben, nice to meet you. He's looking very grumpy and miserable. I, I say, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, what can I tell you about myself? And he says, what have you done lately? And I told him, oh, I'm the spokesman on national TV for my first Sony. And he says, oh, that's so pretentious. I, I'm sorry. What? Did I offend you with that? What? I couldn't believe that he answered that way. That's so pretentious. And then he goes on to say, yeah, you know, my first Sony. Who do they think they are? And I said, I guess they're the people who make Sony equipment. <laughs> what do you want from me? The man hated Sony. No, he didn't. And he didn't hate me. And he wasn't being rude and nasty to me to be rude. He hated his job. And he didn't know me. He couldn't hate me. I had never said anything to him that he could hate. You see, except I was a hopeful actor and he wasn't. And so maybe his wife was divorcing him saying, ah, you flopped as an actor. I'm leaving. You know, maybe, maybe he's dead broke. Maybe, maybe he knows he's losing his job in two days. Who knows? My 
point is for that guy, it wasn't about me. And so let her, let it roll off your back. Oh, I'll tell you a, fr a frustrating audition story. I got so many stories. I went to Gray Advertising's building, a big building in Manhattan, huge ad agency. And I was there, my agent said, to audition for a tire commercial. So the in-house casting director had a recording studio into which he put me. And he said, uh, okay, who's next, McKibben? I said, yes. He says, Is it, you got any experience doing tire commercials? I said, well, I've recorded a whole lot of commercials in New York for the Gannon Tire Company. And he says, what the hell is a Gannon? I said, well, I'm sorry, but they're a local retailer of very high-end tires, Pirellis and Michelins and so forth. I said, so I'm all over news radio here, 1010 Winds and WCBS News Radio and so forth for them. So uh, tune in a radio and you'll hear me. He says, well, whatever. But that's not tire experience. I said, well, I really thought it was. I'm sorry. I guess I just don't know the definition of doing tire commercials. What a jerk, I'm thinking, right? So he puts me in the booth, and the commercial copy that he has has no word tire in it. It doesn't mention tires. I don't remember what it was, but it was a paragraph, and it didn't talk about tires at all. So I give him a line reading. And he gets on the talk back and says, no, that's not it. That's not it at all. I, I said, I'm, I'm sorry. What, what would you like then? I'll give you what you want if I can. He said, make it more brown. Uh, okay, brown. What kind of direction is that? Make it more brown? I'm thinking make it more earthy. Uh, what does brown mean? Make it not so happy as brown like a dark brown sky i said I'm, I'm sorry well i'll give it a try and so i tried to do a little grittier read and he again gets on the talk back and says that's not it at all whoa i'm not getting anywhere with this guy and so i do a third take and i realize uh i don't know what he means and i just said as much i said i'm sorry my bad i do not know what you mean by the direction brown do you have a synonym for that well, I could have said, you know, the most insulting thing in the world to him, and it would have gone over just as well. Because asking him for a synonym, he didn't have it. And he just said, so. He said no, you, you need to know what it is. I said, well, then it's my bad. I just don't. Uh, sorry. And I knew I wasn't going to get the job because this guy's attitude was going to block me. But then I remembered after asking everybody in the business, what the heck did he mean? And nobody knew by the way. He was a lousy director. Duh, he's a terrible director. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing. There you go. Got it. And that's why he's making 20000 a year when guys who are good at it make $20,000 a day. Okay. The top directors in the 1980s and 90s of commercials were making twenty grand for a one-day shoot. Seriously. He's making that $400 a week in New York City that you can't live on. And he's making that per year. Okay. I had to remember, he's pissed off at life. He hates the world. He hates his job because all he can do is record people doing auditions. That's it. That's all the power he's got, which means he's a little general. He's got the power to stop you 
but he doesn't have the power to push you into the job. In other words, he can't go to his boss and say, oh, I hired McKibben. No, you couldn't. No, we do the hiring. So all he could say was, I think McKibben did a good read. But then if he feels for any reason like uh, he wants to stop you, he can do that, you see? So understanding that it wasn't my fault that I couldn't communicate with this guy. It was his. Being a director requires a very good vocabulary to explain what you want. You really have to be pretty adept at precisely indicating to an actor what you want from them. And it's not something you can learn from a textbook. You can't go to a director's school that I'm aware of and be a good director. It's something you learn on the job. Often as an actor, after you've acted a lot and you've seen what directors do, you could go into directing, and many famous actors do occasionally. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, he was a hack. So it wasn't my fault. And, and that was a big lesson. After that, I didn't care whether they said that they loved me or not. Because you know what, Robert? Telling me that I did a good job was the kiss of death. You got to worry when you walk out of the room and they're saying, McKibben, that was a great Lang reading. Boy, oh boy, we're going to keep you in mind. It almost always turned out to be a bad omen <laughs> because they didn't really like you enough that you got the job. I, I encountered that several times. And there's nothing worse, I, I must say, to make you feel bad than hearing the commercial you auditioned for about a month later on TV. You say, gee, that, that sounds very familiar. Well, wait, wait a minute. That's that spot that I auditioned for. And then you hear the person who they chose and you think, I was better than that. But you don't, you don't know what they were thinking. You can never get into their minds and read their thoughts, unfortunately. So walk away from an audition and don't think about it. You did your best? Fine. Then that's all you could do. Do, do not lose sleep that night over, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. Unless, of course, you really did just mess up terribly. And, and then maybe you really should try harder next time. But, um, you know, uh, if you don't get it right this time, there will always be a next time. And learn from your mistakes if there are any. But also realize sometimes the people who don't pass you on to the next level just are having a really awful life. And that's why they don't want to do you any favors. I'm serious about that. You can't control that at all. It's totally out of your hands. But uh, like I say, walk in the room and brighten their day with uh, just a, you know, a funny joke or anything that makes their life a little more bearable. Not just walking and say, gee, I really hope I get this job because I'm suffering. That's the way to make sure that they don't want you. You know, my bosses at the agencies wanted me to hire the best qualified busiest person always the very best qualified actor whether voice or on camera is the one that i should hire obviously not the one who needs the job the worst because he's not getting any jobs see it's it's that it's that double-edged sword you you know i need a job and i need it badly but don't let anybody else know because that will not help you. That will hurt you. All they'll think is, get away from you. You smell like failure. And that smell is really nasty. I, I don't want your fa failure rubbing off on me. 
So, you know, don't, don't take it personally. That's how I would wrap that story up. Right. Got any, got any others for me? I haven't left anything out. Um, no, not really. I guess <laughs> so far right now, I would just ask if you could just self promote yes. the self promotion stuff that people be doing on the social media platforms and whatnot. But yeah, <laughs> um, self like do your, um, just give out your social media, social platforms so sure. people can check out, um, you know, how awesome Chuck is and just, I don't know, any last words that you have to say to my sure. audience out there before we officially conclude this five-part podcast interview. Well, I do want to invite these nice people who've been kind enough to listen to contact me directly. Don't feel that I'm some big shot who can't be talked to. I'm very approachable. And you can reach me best by simply getting to me at Philly VO at comcast.net that's p-h-i-l-l-y philly as in philadelphia v-o as in voiceover philly v-o at comcast.net that's my one and only email address i've still kept it from even though i no longer live in philadelphia my favorite town but now i'm here in suburban uh, new york in uh, in a suburb of new york saddlebrook new jersey where I'm sitting in my studio and um, I'm very approachable. Please uh, got a question for me about my lessons. Got a question about anything. Uh, just, uh, you know, don't expect me to write a lengthy response. I'll get on the phone with you. Give me your phone number and I'll call you and I'll talk for hours. Okay. But I hate typing. I'm a talker, not a typist, as I often say. So as far as email, Make the initial contact by email. I keep my phone off a lot in order to avoid all the spam. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, do that and then I'll reach out to you. I'll call you if you'll be kind enough to leave a message where you can be reached. And you, you want to pick my brain? Please, it's there for the picking. <laughs> um, I've, you know what I love about teaching? I didn't know exactly that I was ever going to do that. I didn't anticipate it what happened was I realized I got all this knowledge and no way to use it. I've already had my success. I've been there, done that. I don't need to prove anything. What am I going to do with what I've learned? And I figured well, I can pass it forward as the teacher. And so, you know, I'm very economical about that and we'll go for hours. If you take a lesson with me, don't plan on it being over after an hour. I mean, we might be on the phone and so forth. And it's as simple as that. Initially, it starts with a phone call and uh, I need to meet you. And I, I'm also going to, if you're listening to me now, I'm going to kind of evaluate if you've got the right reasons to get into this. I have known some people who were uh, uh, mobile disc jockeys. A couple of them came to me for voice lessons. Now, these are guys who go to weddings, you know, and they love to hear their voice on the A system at the wedding. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome for the first time, Mr. and Mrs. John Smith. And, you know, they hear their voice reverberating through the hall, and they think that's what being a voice artist is. Both of the guys who were like that who came to see me took like two lessons and then stopped. Because I told them, no, you got to talk one-on-one -on -one to people. You're not booming out an announcement. 
you're talking with people as I'm talking now. So um, having the right attitude going in is very critically important. And frankly, I don't teach people who are desperate to get their next job. If somebody calls me and says, hi, Mr. McKibben, I'm about to lose my job, my $80,000 a year job in my corporate uh, world, and uh, I don't know how I'm going to pay my mortgage come two months from now. I'm going to tell them this is not going to be instant income. No, you're not going to take lessons from me because I won't be responsible. I won't be responsible for you being foolish. Gosh, I had a house painter who hated his work, and I think the fumes of the paint were getting to him. He comes and sees me one night and says, oh, I'm so glad I had the money to pay you. He said, I've got $87. Well, I was charging, I think, 40 at the time. And I said to him, what do you mean you've got $87? Total? In your bank account? I mean, on you? What? What do you mean? He said, yeah, that's, that's all I've got, but I can take another lesson. I said, get out of here. You're not taking another voiceover lesson. I didn't know you were down to 87 bucks to your name. You're going to be eating cat food in a few days. Please get out and go get a J-O-B. I don't care what it is, but this isn't it. Uh, voiceover doesn't happen overnight. It takes a good two to three years to build a successful voiceover group, honestly. And there's no guarantee you'll get one at all. So I don't, I don't like to teach people who are depending on voiceover to replace a job that's not a real good ed that's not a good idea that's I, I just don't want a part of that and i must say i'm very proud to charge so little because i don't need the money a lot i mean i like to get money don't get me wrong i'm not crazy and i don't want to just give it away but um the fact of the matter is i don't need to make a pot of gold and that's good isn't it uh and I'm not, as I say, I'm not even an aggressive competitor for the jobs anymore. So again, it's uh, Philly, V-O, P-H-I-L-L-Y-V-O, at Comcast.net. Please visit the couple of uh, videos in which I'm interviewed on YouTube. Just type in my name, Chuck McKibben, M-C-K-I-B-B-E-N, and you'll see me get interviewed in 2011. And I think the other one was so 2018, maybe? And, uh, you know, um, I'm this guy who uh, you can talk to anytime you want and ask a lot of questions of. But I don't have much of a social presence. I'm not on Twitter. I don't answer um, on my cell phone. I don't really respond to uh, text because I don't like typing with my thumbs. Well, I don't like typing in general. So the best and only way really to get in touch with me is by email. And I do check my emails, oh gosh, once an hour. So uh, if you'd like to reach me, whoever you are and wherever you are, uh, I'm a friendly guy. I don't bite. And I like meeting the people who get into this business because they tend to be pretty cool people. I have really enjoyed meeting just about 99.9% .9 of all the people who've ever studied with me. And this goes back, as I say, all the way back to Catherine in the 1980s. And she's still a friend. We communicate all the time on Facebook um, and you can, you know, you can send me a Facebook uh, message because uh, I'm there. Um, but that's it. As far as social media, I'm a 75 year old guy. You know, I jumped into social media way too late to be like a 20 year old with it uh, who are so good at it and all that. Um, as I have mentioned 
social media is terribly important if you want to be a cartoon voice these days. You better have followers. You better have Twitter and everything else. Uh, but I'm a little past all that age-wise, and forgive me, folks, but I'm just, I've learned an awful lot of technology in my life. You know, I'm up to date totally with recording technology. You can pick my brain about the best programs to use, about the mics to buy, all that kind of stuff. And I love talking shop. I really do. Uh, again, it's my hobby. It's not just my life's work and my passion, but it, it's something that I really enjoy. I see we have a few minutes left. Um, Robert, I, uh, I've uh, sort of given out all that personal information now. Do you have anything you'd like to add? Any questions you'd still like to ask? Um, I mean, like, <laughs> do you have... Or have I put you any... on the spot? No, 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 no. I'm trying to think of one more, but I just kind of, <laughs> I'm blanking out. But yeah, this has just been a really big honor. It's such a huge pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you, audience, um, for being patient, uh, like for waiting for these parts <laughs> to go up and whatnot. Um, I'm really sorry that like... Um, what is it part one or part two i think it was part two that we kind of ended abruptly so um yes. yeah thank you for um yeah being patient for your patience it's very much appreciated and um yeah like do you have like any closing thoughts like an outro or just any farewells goodbyes or just sure um i'm irish and scottish scotch irish uh they are some of the more famous writers in the world that's a neat little fun fact or trivia just yeah. that not too many people get to know about, you know, you know, I, I mean, guess. some of the greatest writers in the history of the world were the Irish or the Scottish. Uh, what do we do? We sing old Lang Syne at new year's, which was written by Robert Burns, a Scotsman. Okay. So we don't even understand what old Lang Syne means, but we sing it anyway. And why not? Well, what I'm saying is I had a kind of a gift by birth, I think, that I was um, inclined to be very literate. So I'm going to pass this along that I have not mentioned. This is the word business. The word business these days is suffering because, quite frankly, a lot of people don't honor the significance, the importance of language. But language is what builds the world. When somebody builds a skyscraper, they start by talking about what they want. Then they start to write things down, still language. They write down the dimensions of the building. They write things down. They describe how it should look and so forth. The word builds everything in this world. Your schooling may have been dull. It may have been, I can't wait to get out of grade school, high school, maybe go to college. But the one thing that made college unnecessary for me was that I was a wordsmith. A long time ago, I was a newspaper columnist in Cincinnati. And uh, I was invited to teach at the University of Cincinnati, even though I hadn't graduated from there, because the dean was so impressed with my writing. Imagine that. He brought me in to interview me and wanted to give me, in the worst way, wanted to give me a professorship. But I was also invited to work for two other universities teaching this. I was very flattered, but I said, look, guys, I, according to your standards, I don't have that parchment. 
uh, you can't put me on as a teacher. I did, you know, I gotta have, have graduated from college. But you know what I did in my sophomore year? I dropped out of college and went to work in prime time in Cincinnati. I was on the air in afternoon drive time. Well, that's why I was going to college was to get that job. So I knew I'm not going to need this. Nobody's ever going to ask a disc jockey, do you have a college education? But being literate, being a good speaker and having good language is a key to my success. Being a reader is great. Read everything. Learn everything you can from books, from the internet, from any source. But don't think that you're going to get by in, the, in this life with charm. Uh, the, the voiceover business is all about the word, all about language. We're the language masters, or at least we're supposed to be. And it can be very difficult to read audiobooks if you're not good with language, quite frankly. Well, I, I was born with the gene for it. And I know that not everybody has that. But if you were born without it, well, young person, try to try to do more reading. Try to get more literate if you possibly can. Go to a library once in a while just for the heck of it. I like to do that. I like to go and read all the periodicals that I don't bother to subscribe to and pay for subscriptions. But I like to read anything and everything that's an interesting article. And, um, you know, I try to stay up to date with what's going on in the world about politics and everything else. Uh, it's very important that you be tuned in to what's going on in this business because they don't want to hire dummies. Not to be a spokesperson for a major corporation. Not to be a famous person representing a, a company in any sense. So those people who are corporate narrators, they're very, very literate. They know, they know that you can't say something like, oh, yeah, I seen that movie. I seen it. Well, that's a past tense, but it's the wrong past tense. No, you saw it. So, you know, a mistake like that in a conversation with a producer can get you not hired. I'm serious. Somebody who uses a, an example of really poor grammar in my presence, I'm going to start to doubt whether they're the person I want in front of my client. Well, I see we only have about a minute left. Robert, I want to thank you very sincerely. Never anticipated this would be more than a one-shot deal, but I've enjoyed these five meetings with you. You're a fine young fella, and uh, I sound like an old codger saying that, don't I? <laughs> but you are a fine young man. Everybody's younger than me now, I get the feeling. Uh, but I've had a very good life in this business, and I wish that for anyone else who aspires to it. Call me, pick my brain. Maybe, you know what? If I give you one bit of, of, of advice, pardon me for getting tongue tangled. If I give you one bit of advice that saves you from falling for some con or a charlatan, I'll be very happy that I talk to you. I really love to talk to younger people and try to get them steered on the right path. Well, I'm going to say goodbye to everybody. Thank you again, Robert, and be well, everyone. Take good care of your health. Thank you. And for everybody who stayed to the very end of this, um, congratulations. You want a pat on the back and a platter <laughs> of cookies. Um, there you go. Digital cookies. So there you go. Um, yeah, thank you very much for sticking to the very end of this. And um, more episodes will be on the way. So stay tuned next time on the Station Square Podcast. This is Robert Jackson signing out. And until then, have a lovely rest of your days, afternoons, mornings, whichever time zones you're in. And yeah, take care and take it easy, y'all. Stay safe, stay happy, stay positive. 
And yeah, be yourselves. And yeah, you got this. I believe in you. Good luck out there. Take care, y'all. Bye-bye.